it's hard when you're in an early stage company to balance wearing as many hats as possible to be that team player that's helping out in every arena versus specializing and being really, really good at one or two things. If you're going to be the CEO of a startup company with a team of two, you're going to have to do everything. But at a company that's even A or B, if you find yourself in a position to do something that you're not excellent at at the C-level, think about the fact that people in the C-level are expected to be excellent. Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Emea Fatke, Patients Non-Pharma Solutions Leader at KSC Pharma. In their own words, KSC is an international, research-focused biopharmaceutical group that develops and markets innovative therapeutic solutions in respiratory health, rare diseases, and specialty care. Today, I spoke with Acacia Parks, founder of Liquid Amber Consulting. Liquid Amber helps digital health and DTX companies support the claims they want to make using scientific evidence in the ways that will be compelling to the audiences they care about. But before we dive in... Acacia and I first met when she was at Twill Therapeutics, artist formerly known as Happify. We recently reconnected at DTX West, and I expressed the need to have more patients on this podcast speaking about their experiences with digital therapies. Acacia volunteered to speak about her experience with Free Spira, yes, a previous guest on our podcast. But given her extensive scientific background, we decided to broaden the discussion in this episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Acacia. Acacia, welcome to the DTX podcast. And this time it's a bit different. You were on the Shadow Digital Health. It was like some evening. It was just crazy times. So this one, we're ready. But for all of our listeners, would love to hear a little bit about your background and also a small interesting fact about yourself. My origin story is the frustrated research psychologist. I got my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. I was working with Marty Seligman and working with all these research luminaries in all of the like empirically validated clinical approaches. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to cure depression. That's what I'm going to do. And I became frustrated when I realized there was so much evidence about what helps mental health conditions. And nobody was actually able to reach any of those things. The average consumer could not connect And clinical psychology didn't even necessarily think this was a problem at the time. There was a big divide of people saying, oh, well, we're doing therapy. It's great. It's working. I got frustrated with all of that right around the time that technology started to creep its way into clinical psychology. And there started to be this idea that maybe the Internet could be the answer. So I started off as a frustrated psychologist and then saw technology as a way to do something different from what clinical psychology was doing very well, but at a slow pace and not necessarily like aligned as a field that evidence based was the way to go. And. While that was all interesting, your flip to use in technology to solve the mental health issues, any fun facts outside of that? My fun fact is that sitting next to me is a carnivorous anglerfish named Coco Chanel. She lives in a little fish tank next to me. I feed her fish on a little dangly pole and she stares at me all day. We have a relationship. That's amazing. And somebody who doesn't talk back. That's right. She has an attitude, but a silent one. Silent one. That's always good. 
So I think I'm going to make an assumption based on your introduction, how you got into the DTX space. But maybe if you want to expand on it, how did you see the DTX space coming in? How did you get into it? And what did it mean to you? It was actually a bit serendipitous. I had done a dissertation where we had designed potentially the world's least engaging digital therapeutic. Is there a prize for that? <laughs> I mean, the prize is my career, right? Because <laughs> I got up and talked about this. It was really just text on a web page, things that we had done in person. And I was like, well, let's make it digital and see what happens. And when people did it, it worked, but people basically did not do it for the most part. So I got up at a conference and I talked about that. I said, look, this works, but like, why am I designing digital interventions? I don't know what I'm doing. We should be collaborating with industry. And Tomer Benkiki and Ofer Leidner were in the audience listening to me speak. And they had an idea for a startup company and they were looking for a scientist to help them build it. And so they came to me after my talk and our relationship began and ultimately spun up into Happify Now Twill. So they had an idea of like, we need a scientist to help us figure out how to make this evidence-based in a field at that time, not to date myself, was not evidence-based. Digital health was anything goes, all kinds of stuff out there. Most of it was not science-based. None of them had been studied with clinical trials. At that time, I was doing clinical trials with Happify, and I don't think anybody else in that field had a clinical trial. It was just not required. So it was this wild, wild west. And what I really appreciated about those guys is that they believe in science from the beginning and science was in the DNA of this digital health company we founded at a time when that was not required in any way. It was an additional burden on the organization to do it, but they just really believed what we did needed to be evidence-based. And that really was compelling to me. Before we get to Liquid Amber, because I'm really curious on that, Maybe you can walk our listeners through in more of a commercial setting. So you mentioned you spend roughly a decade or so with Twill. You spent some time at Found as a chief science officer. Can you tell our listeners what does a day in life look like for a chief science officer? Because I can imagine, obviously, there's hard science that takes time. And then there's the commercial pressures of getting to market, getting commercialization, getting up and running and scaling. So curious what your days look like, and I'm sure the DNA of companies differ, but what's a chief science officer's daily routine? Yeah, not that much, actually. As a consultant, which we'll talk about later, I'm essentially doing all the things I did as a chief science officer in a more piecemeal way. So actually, it's all the same, which is one Looking at the data you have, understanding what kind of data your product is collecting, what kind of data your product should be collecting, so that ultimately when you want to go look at the data of the people using your product, you can conclude something meaningful. So companies will often make the mistakes of say, oh, we should ask as little as possible. We don't want to burden them with questions, et cetera. But then looking back, they can't make any sense of their data. They're not even sure if they've moved whatever patient outcome they're trying to move because the assessment's not in place. So looking at the data that the product collects, analyzing that data and understanding what's going on, and then thinking, where are the gaps and what new studies might we need to do to fill those gaps? So step one is like data already being collected. Step two is data that might need to be collected prospectively. Like let's design this new study and do this because our product, we don't have the data in it to answer this. So there might be certain outcomes. For example, we want to understand 
whether a clinician can tell that we've had an impact on this therapeutic area. And like, that's not built into the app. So you might have to do a separate study. That can also include things like regulatory, where like you need to do a separate study for, you know, a 510K or de novo to submit to FDA. Doing new studies, as you know, it's a big time commitment. And so there are whole teams dedicated to that, just designing and then doing studies. There's also a significant stream related to product development because product development needs to be evidence-based. It needs to be grounded in clinical best practices. And so somebody in my position often is responsible for bringing that expertise or at least partnering with, if there's, say, a medical affairs group to kind of generate the right internal knowledge so that those products are good and evidence-based. Product teams can then take that and physically build it. The mental and clinical part often comes from a medical affairs or chief science officer type seat. And then the regulatory strategy of it, and actually that's a relatively new thing I picked up towards the end of my time at Twill and have been building on, is if you're doing evidence generation, it makes sense to also know a lot about regulatory because the type of evidence you need depends on what you're doing from a regulatory standpoint. And many companies right now, I'd say one of the more urgent questions on companies' minds is what regulatory pathway does this product fit in or could this product fit in? And then what are the implications if we use this pathway versus that pathway? In terms of research we have to do and commercialization paths, different ways that we can go if we're in this regulatory category versus that. So if you think about current data, new studies that need to happen, product design and advising on that, and then the overall regulatory strategy and how all of these things commit you to one commercial path versus another, those are the broad categories of things that I have done over the years and I'm doing now. So you're doing this now, and to your point, you're now helping multitude of companies, maybe with the whole part of this value chain or pieces of it. Your company name is Liquid Amber. And I'm always curious, I've been asking in this podcast, like origin of the name. First of all, I did wake up one day and say Liquid Amber, but there are reasons. You may have noticed that my name is Acacia, which is a tree. And then my last name is Parks, which is a clump of trees. So the tree motif, liquid amber is a type of tree, but it's also the type of tree that lined the street where I grew up in Southern California. And what makes it special is that even though it's in Southern California, where in general you do not get a four seasons experience, it changes color with the seasons. I think that's why it's called liquid amber, but it has the yellow and the red leaves and all of those things. So I like that image of something that's sturdy, but adaptable. And it has a beautiful changes with the seasons flair. And it's a tree, as am I. (laughs) Amazing. I'm surprised you don't have like a little ficus tree or something on your desk and fish was your choice. (laughs) Well, look, I got a tree there. I got a tree there. And I live on 58 acres, so I have a lot of trees. (laughs) Plenty of trees. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Unlike many other episodes here where we go through everything from company origin and evidence generation and commercialization, I think with you, we'd love to focus on around evidence generation. That's the heart of what you do and you as a person. So at the moment that company decides, well, we need evidence generation because we're producing a science-backed product ultimately that will impact human beings positively. Can you talk to us about the process? Again, you can rewind back all the way to the early Happify days. You have a number of customers now. Walk us through what entrepreneurs need to be thinking from literally the moment they set up their company with a digital therapy or a broader digital health. 
I think the biggest thing, and this is going back to what we discussed earlier about companies wanting to understand what regulatory pathway they're on. Are they wellness? Are they enforcement discretion? Are they going to submit a 510K? If you can understand that as early as possible, then you know who your stakeholders are. Like, who is this research trying to please? Like, one of the things that I think I spend the most time thinking about is what's the sentence that you want to come out of your mouth about what this product does and how you know that it does that? And then think about who's going to hear it and whether they're going to find that sentence compelling. What's the type of research that's going to be required for you to be able to say that thing and have people believe it? And it's different depending on where you are. You know, if you're in wellness and you're selling to employers, you're going to focus a lot more on cost savings. You're going to focus a lot more on productivity outcomes. You still need evidence, right? But the type of evidence you need is one much more flexible on the wellness side because there isn't some guideline that you have to follow. It's just, will they be convinced or not? And you're much more flexible, but you also are dealing with different outcomes than say, if you're trying to go to FDA, in that case, you have FDA as a set of stakeholders, and then you've got payers after that, you've got healthcare providers after that. So you have multiple stakeholders you have to please. And then this is where I tend to play because it's a more complex evidence generation strategy of, okay, well, we have to do this to check boxes for FDA, but then there's this different thing that will check boxes for payers, but then healthcare providers aren't going to use it unless you give them this. And so you kind of have to think about all the different ways that you need to gather and package evidence, depending on who's going to look and how complex that's going to be for you, depending on what kind of pathway you're trying to take. The sort of employer world is completely different from the health plan as a benefit world, which is different from trying to get your solution covered by a health plan. These are all different places where like consumers don't necessarily want to see your published study. But if you publish it somewhere fancy and can do a press release about it, that might reach a consumer. And so it's not just about the studies you're doing, but the ways that you're disseminating and packaging them, depending on who's going to be reading them, their level of scientific literacy, the types of outcomes they care about, and so on. It makes me think because obviously being an entrepreneur, having a startup, things change quite often. And I always kind of use the example, something like paratherapeutics, which we all know what's been happening out in the marketplace, chose the PDT route from literally day zero. Peter Hames at Big Health chose, I guess, originally direct to consumer, but then pivoted to more of the employer channel. And while one of the most studied companies still decided not to go the PDT route, Actually, let's use your old employer, Twill, that actually has both, was kind of more of a direct-to-consumer wellness product employer. And I think it's probably one of the few DTX companies out there that have the Trio also has a PDT product out there. So maybe guide a little bit the entrepreneurs that are listening, because those are tough choices and tough investments and quality management systems. And if you go PDT first, is it easier to go non-PDT later if you choose to? So do you design your processes for the most complex in the beginning? Lots of questions to unwind, and this is probably why you have your consulting company, but to the extent here, you want to share what you can. One of the things that we went through at Twill was the process of going from being a wellness company to a company that's capable of producing enforcement discretion and PDT products. And it was pretty painful. Like, I think that's not a secret. Everybody would agree that trying to take a group that's used to operating in a startup mode super fast 
let's just introduce quality systems. Let's document everything. It was really brutal. Nobody was prepared for this, just culturally, even as a company. And we didn't document anything in the beginning. I think it's really common. You're moving so fast and you don't keep the types of records that you would have to. So it's not just about implementing the systems, which is tough. First of all, the type of person that does great in a startup environment might not even be the right person to be functioning in your new regulated environment. And that's painful. You don't want to have to do massive staff turnovers or shifting your organization, but that's the kind of thing you do have to do sometimes when you're making that kind of a move. So it is generally better if you're going to operate under quality systems, if you're going to try and create regulated products to do it early on. And that can be quite painful for companies. You know, I recommend that to companies and they go, but we're so early still. Like, do we really have to do that? And I'm just thinking, but early is when you want to do it, right? Early is when it will be easier. But there's a cost associated. And so that tension does exist where companies might realize they need to do it someday, but they're delaying doing it. HIPAA compliance, you see the same thing. Companies like know they need to be HIPAA compliant, but they're like, well, maybe I'll just wait until I have to. And that's really tough. It's not a fast process, but if you wait till you have to, then you're having to scramble to get there. So it is tough and it's tough to do both because you're then restricted by quality systems for your wellness products. You lose that sort of nimble agility by becoming a medical device company that has to follow all of these more regimented procedures. So to do wellness or to do regulated, I think is a lot easier than trying to do both at the same time or to switch. I think key component to all of this to a certain extent is putting a business hypothesis together in the timeframes that allowed to you, given the funding and the market, you want to prove or disprove it as quickly as possible. And that's, of course, much more difficult in a PDT prescription environment than the wellness. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Acacia Parks, founder of Liquid Amber Consulting. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the process. We're obviously taking a very kind of 40,000 foot view in a lot of this. This is complex, but I'd love to talk about active ingredients in digital therapeutics. Can you go through some of examples of that? In a molecule, we know there's active ingredients. That's something that people are aware of, but I don't think people think about active ingredients in software. So uh, your tips and tricks for researchers and entrepreneurs there. One of the things I love about digital therapeutics is that I think in the beginning, many of us were gravitating towards a pretty uniform, you know, like, let's look at pairs regulation, digital behavioral therapy for a psychiatric disorder. It's very broad. It allows for a lot of things. And so in the beginning, I think a lot of us were just thinking about how can we do something that's tied to that regulation so that we can do a 510K. And so you're looking at cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral activation, all of these kind of standard evidence-based things I was reading about in undergrad and graduate school and being pissed off nobody could access, like right there in a digital product. And so I do think that is a very common active ingredient mechanism of action paired with some sort of just overall engagement framework of something like, I don't know if you're familiar with MediSafe, which I don't know that I call it a digital therapeutic, but I use it. I never fail to take my medication with MediSafe and I switched phones and MediSafe was gone. And I like just never took my midday pill at all until I put it back on. So it's just these sort of frameworks. Well, I'm sure Omri and team will appreciate the shout out here. Yay, MediSafe! Ultimately, that's mechanism of action too. It's just the framework that prompts a behavior. Without that, something robust there, digital therapeutics are sunk. 
you can take cognitive therapy, but I used to give cognitive therapy to people and they would go home and they'd come back and they'd be like, wait, was there homework? They don't do any of the activities because there isn't that framework. So I'd say those are the two in the beginning, but now I would say these third wave DTX, I'm seeing all kinds of wild stuff. One of my clients, Lucid, they're doing AI driven music playlists for adults with dementia to soothe agitation. That's just its own mechanism of action. It's like, let's take what prompts like positive reminiscence, find the right thing for that person and then play it for them so they can feel calm. I'm working with a company called Dopavision. They have a headset and app based product that slows the progression of childhood myopia. This is not cognitive therapy. (laughs) This is a whole other thing. So that really excites me. Obviously, I love cognitive therapy. And I think for some things where it's clearly established that that's the right approach, by all means, that's what digital therapeutics should do. But if you look at an area like weight loss, which I know as somebody involved in coaching, you're involved in too, it's like weight loss, nobody knows what works really. I mean, there are some things that work, but the evidence is very inconsistent. So you wouldn't just box it up and stick it in a DTX. Like We're still figuring out what works for obesity behavior change. And we can talk about coaching later, but like we know that in some places, human elements are really important. And that straight digital approach might not be enough. And so we're also starting to see digital therapeutics that have a human element integrated. And that's a really interesting mechanism of action, too. It's almost like it's MediSafe on steroids because now we've got a human like really thinking about how to keep you engaged. But it's that same mechanism of that overarching engagement element overlaid on whatever your intervention mechanism of action is. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey, Acacia. What is your pro tip to get regulatory approvals for digital therapeutics? What should a company do before, during, and right after? Thanks, Shannon. That's a good question. And actually, I think it's one that I get asked quite a lot. And the short answer is talk to FDA. Many companies are afraid to talk to FDA. They don't want to show up with something and change what they're doing and then had FDA see that. But ultimately, the best way that any company is going to understand what they need to do to satisfy FDA's concerns is to talk to FDA about those concerns. So it's not just talking to FDA because there are ways to talk to FDA that are more or less helpful or productive. And so it's talking to them in a particular way where you're really getting down to what is the concern that is driving whatever hesitation they have. So if you bring, say, a study design you're thinking about doing to them and they say, I don't like that you're using that measure. That measure concerns me. Don't be like, hey, so what measure would you use? You want to understand why they're concerned about that measure, because that leaves you the most moves. It leaves you to be able to understand, okay, well, if the concern is this, maybe I could do this other thing, this other thing, this other thing. You can figure out what makes sense for you, what's most likely to both satisfy them and meet your needs. And so there is a certain way of speaking to FDA that lets them verbalize what they're actually worried about. And that's what I recommend to companies the most is to speak to FDA early and often. Don't feel like you have to wait till you have a fully like 80 page research protocol to share with them. That sort of early conversation, like here's my company, here's what we're planning on doing, here are the products we're planning on developing, here are the pathways we think we're gonna follow. 
roughly, here's our evidence generation strategy. Those types of conversations can also be very fruitful and companies tend to skip those. They tend to wait until they have something bigger and then they're locked into things that FDA could have partnered with them about. And as usual, I'm going to hop in here. And one thing I want to remind people listening to this, FDA employees are human beings too, and that's okay to talk to them (laughs) ahead of time. So just a friendly reminder. And speaking of FDA and FDA approved products, so I know when we saw each other at DTX West, and I think earlier in the season of the DTX podcast, I said, you know, I want to have patients on that have gone and used DTX products. And right off the bat, you almost jumped out of right there and said, hey, you know, I'd love to talk about my experience. And you shared your personal story with me on Free Spiro. And we had Free Spirit on this podcast earlier this year. So it is, to my knowledge, the only FDA cleared medication free, helping with panic disorders, PTSD, and other underlying physiological factors. So would love for you to give us a little context here, but also your experience on Free Spira, because how did it help? How did it not? What were your pathways through it? My story with Free Spira is pandemic related. So early on in the pandemic, I was just really stressed about it. I think like many people were. I live in a part of the country where people weren't really concerned about social distancing. So there was a lot of isolation. And then my husband got in a car accident. And we had this whole stressful experience of him being in a hospital and I couldn't visit him. He's fine. Like everything was fine. But the level of stress was just getting really high for me. And I started to have panic attacks at night. I didn't really have a history of panic at all, but I am a clinical psychology trained person and I know what a panic attack is. And so it was happening. I'd be dead asleep and I would just wake up and feel like an emergency was happening. It was really terrible because I couldn't sleep. And one of the benefits of being in this industry is that I could text Deb Riesenthal <laughs> to help me. So I immediately thought of Free Spirit, right? Because for all the reasons that you just articulated, and it's like, Deb, can you help me? She, to her credit, sent me a Free Spirit device and hooked me up with Bob Kyler, who's incredible to actually go through the process with me as my coach or therapist. And I did it exactly as prescribed and I don't get panic attacks anymore. So to me, that's like, just proof is in the pudding. This product actually cured my panic disorder or panic attacks, which you don't see that every day. Cure is not a word that you hear floating around. It's a big deal. I know Joe on the season walked us through, but I think outside of texting Deb and getting the box at the door, maybe just walk us through the actual experience. And then it was an eight or 12 week program. You'll remind us here are you still using some of those tools? And that's part of this. So just again, walk us on what that experience, quote unquote, unboxing to usage was. The package is a combination of a device that has a CO2 sensor in it and a cannula. So it's just this little box that has a CO2 cartridge. And, you know, like when you see people in the hospital on TV and they have that thing in their nose, it's one of these things, you put it on. And then there's a tablet. And the tablet has the software that actually helps you understand, one, what your CO2 level is, which is important for reasons I'll articulate in a second. So it tells you what your CO2 level is. And then it also gives you auditory feedback. It gives you a set of sounds to guide your breathing. So the idea here is that one of the things that triggers panic is that you are holding your breath 
or hyperventilating in ways that make it so that your CO2 levels are too high. And when your CO2 levels are too high, things happen in your body that trigger panic attacks. Your heart starts palpitating and you're more likely to have a panic attack. And so people are basically going around with this breathing pattern that triggers panic. So what you do is you put this cannula in and you learn to breathe in a way And it's telling you right there on the screen what your CO2 level is. So you're trying to get your CO2 level to a certain region and it's really high from the way that you're breathing. And you're breathing in a way that is very uncomfortable at first. Like it makes you feel like you're not getting enough air. And so the biofeedback is really important because it's telling you, no, 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 but you're doing the right thing. You don't have too little oxygen. You have the right amount of oxygen. Keep doing what you're doing. The coach is important for that too, because you sort of like don't want to do it. It's kind of unpleasant at times because you feel like you're starving for air, but you practice that and you do multiple sessions a day. And that, I think this is really cool, phones home to your coach or therapist. So Bob could see if a day went by and I didn't do any sessions and he'd email me and be like, Acacia, what's going on? Are you okay? And on days that I did sessions that went really well, he'd be like, Acacia, that looks amazing. Keep doing that. It's light touch, but he could see whether I was doing it and how it was going when I did it. So that if I was doing it and it was obviously really tough from the data, he could also reach out and say, hey, do you need to talk about this? I see that was probably difficult for you. That was really amazing because, okay, so I've got this device and I'm practicing, but I also have a human looking at how that practice is going for me. And I don't need to tell them anything. They can just tell by looking at my data. And then they have some system in place so that he knows He's got some SOP he's following for when to reach out to me. And so I did it. My compliance was very high, even though it was very tough and unpleasant at first. But having that device paired with the human element that wasn't like in my face. I didn't have to have therapy sessions. We didn't have like deep conversations about anything other than just making sure I could do it. But he would teach me like if I don't understand, why does it feel like I'm starved for air? He'd be like, well, let me explain to you. So there was some education that made me feel like I understood what was happening to me and how it was going to get better as well. So yeah, we did that. I think there's some flexibility. Like if I hadn't been okay by the end of the course of treatment, they would send me another cartridge and we would extend it. So it's more about getting to the point where you feel like things are better. And I do think it's a product that's designed with the intention that you'll be better at the end of it, not that it's going to be years or even months And uh, then they have an app for maintenance. So at the end, you send it back. You don't need to keep the CO2 sensor forever. Now I can do the breathing and I understand how it all works. And I don't really need the biofeedback to convince me. I know it works and I know what it feels like when it's working. And so they just have a little app that keeps making that sound that tells you how you're supposed to breathe. And I could pull that up anytime I want to, but frankly, I don't need to. If I feel that I'm having breakthrough panic, which I would say happens maybe like, I don't know, once every month or two, do the breathing, goes away. One of the questions, and you alluded to throughout this discussion, is human touch, whether it's virtual or next to you. And as part of that journey, I think we've sort of erred on digital side as the digital health buzzword, digital therapeutics, self-paced technology is here to give broader access to individuals. Would love to get maybe a little bit deeper. I know you also spent time at Found where health coaches were a key component of it. You've alluded to health coaches at Freespira and few other cases. Maybe uh, talk to us as a scientist and specifically in the digital therapeutic space and software 
and studying that data, what at a broader level are you seeing the impact of human beings and specifically health coaches in this arena? Yeah, I spent a significant amount of my time at Found thinking about that exact question. At some point through serendipity, ended up leading the coaching organization there. And so I did a lot of diving into that data. And one of the biggest insights was that some people really don't want a coach and you shouldn't give them a coach. <laughs> like it seems obvious, but there are people, if they want the coach and they want to interact with the coach, they get tremendous value. But if they don't want a coach, there's nothing you can do to convince them like, oh, but just give it a shot and like, let's see. Again, it sounds obvious, but many companies, including ones that I've just used as benefits in my own health plan, like just playing with what coaching is like in these companies, they just give you a coach whether you want one or not. And that's operationally pretty wasteful, but it's also not great for either the coach or the human who doesn't even want to be matched with a coach. So I think like focusing on understanding who wants that and really doubling down on getting that service to them ends up being really quite incredible when it comes to outcomes. This one size fits all thing can't fly with human services because if you look at these statistics about people not having access to treatment, therapies, and so on, decent part of it is that there are certain people that are just mortified at the idea of having a live conversation with someone. So there's also these different modalities. I found we really focused on text-based asynchronous coaching. So it was much more like having a text message conversation with somebody. We didn't have live conversations. And then there's other types of coaching where you're having a live, you talk for 20 minutes. It might just be a check-in or whatever. But some people are put off by how impersonal text is. And others are mortified at the idea of having to speak live to somebody about their health. And so it's not just who wants a coach, but what sort of coaching is going to meet them where they are and feel like the right level of intimacy. I loved getting emails from Bob. I talked to him live and he's great. He's a great therapist and like talking to him, he was very soothing, but I get exhausted by that kind of conversation. And I didn't want a lot of that. And I didn't get a lot of that. I got the email correspondence, which was just what I needed. So finding that sweet spot of the right amount of engagement or intimacy almost of the relationship that a particular person wants. If you don't do that, if you do the one size fits all thing, you're sunk. Obviously, readiness to change, but also that high level of personalization is important. We're all human beings and what we say here at Your Coach, for the foreseeable future, human eye is still better than AI, and that human eye needs to determine as well what are your preferences are in communicating and how. Acacia, you've worn different hats across your career as a researcher, as a C-level exec, as a patient. I mean, we all are, unfortunately, patients somewhere in our health journey. You've been an entrepreneur, early days in Happify Twill. Who would you like to give advice to? From which seat, from which side of the hat? I'll pick C-level for you. It's hard when you're in an early stage company to balance wearing as many hats as possible to be that team player that's helping out in every arena versus specializing and being really, really good at one or two things. But I think if there's one piece of advice I have, and this is maybe like a thing that I see women especially pushing themselves towards, is just raising their hand to everything. 
and thinking, oh, it's a growth opportunity. So look, if you're going to be the CEO of a startup company with a team of two, you're going to have to do everything. But at a company that's even A or B, if you find yourself in a position to do something that you're not excellent at at the C-level, think about the fact that people in the C-level are expected to be excellent. You want to think about, and this is true even in consulting, like I could consult on some things that are more distant from my expertise, but I won't because I want to be excellent at everything I'm doing. So my best advice is to think about like, what can you be excellent at? And don't feel so pulled to do everything because you're not going to be excellent at everything. But again, at the C-level, you're going to be expected to be excellent. So I've spent a lot of time reflecting on just like, am I okay being a niche super specialized expert at these couple of things. And I think in the end, I am. And specialization's okay. So I guess if I had to walk back my high level recommendation, it's if you specialize, there will still be work for you. There will still be stuff for you to do. Don't feel like you have to go so broad that you are doing everything because then you're not gonna be great at all of those things. And you wanna be great. You can't be everything to everyone. Mm Mm-mm. Acacia, I also know that you are a fellow podcaster, so maybe tell us just a little bit about your podcast, what you're doing on it, and who your guests, who you're looking for as well. Yeah, it's called DTX Equals. It's produced by Slice of Healthcare. Shout out to Jared there. Yeah, Jared! (laughs) The logo is a picture of me as if I were Popeye holding a can of DTX. So just to give you a sense of like, (laughs) it's whimsical. And the idea of the podcast is to just sit down with leaders from all over DTX and ask them what makes DTX DTX. What is DTX to them and what can DTX become in the future? So it's a high level kind of future focused conversation, understanding where are we hitting barriers and what can we do about them? That's awesome. I'm going to make sure that I follow and uh, maybe we can pass each other some guests and continue the discussions. You know, DTX is here and it's here to stay. Absolutely. You've been an early trailblazer in the industry, but I do want to ask the question, who inspires you? Who do you look up to in not specifically DTX, but broader digital health industry? I would say that a clump of people, related people come to mind. I am so inspired by and happy to know Ed Cox and Melinda Decker and Marty Colliott, who I would say are like my number one phone a friend people. If I don't know something between those three people, they know. But I'll highlight again, those are all people who specialize relentlessly in what they do. And they're the experts. So to me, when I think about the people I go to the most, it's not generalists. It's not people who can do a million things. It's the people who just do this one thing and nobody knows more about it than them. And Ed, Melinda and Marty are those people for me. Endless respect and just awesome people. I second that. We started with you. So let's end this episode with you. What makes you get up in the morning aside from your really loud fish? I'm nosy. I think ever since I realized that you could put a digital therapeutic through FDA clearance, I have become obsessed with how that's going to play out and what it is that regulators are looking for. And, you know, to me, the fact that I'm working with a variety of different companies, all of whom are drafting precepts and talking to FDA and going to get feedback, to me, it's like trying to put together that larger puzzle with as many data points as possible because I'm nosy. I want to know. 
I want to understand how is the agency's thinking evolving? How is this field? What direction is it going in, in terms of evidence generation, in terms of what's going to make it through clearance? I just really want to know. So every day I wake up and I do things that are going to help me understand that a little bit better. And it gets me jazzed. Curiosity is a key and important trait. Well, Acacia, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about your coach health or health excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.